uh, let's ask God, as we do each week, to help us with this word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy that you would help me to teach this word clearly and boldly as I ought, and you would grant us all to receive it as it is, your word, the word of the living God, to believe it and to conform our thinking and action to what you teach us here so that our lives might bring you praise and honour and do good in the lives of others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The place of love, the theme of 1 Corinthians 13, is so accepted in our society that people, as Jean said, even have 1 Corinthians 13 read at their weddings. Love has such cultural primacy as the self-evident value all should embrace that it can even be used as a slogan to persuade, can't it? Love is love, we're told. But the acceptance of the centrality of love as the core human value has not always been the case. It was not so amongst the elites in Roman Corinth, for example. Their honour was primary to be pursued in all one's dealings. Listen to a couple of ancient authors. Uh, Firstly, Aristotle. The greatest external good we should assume to be the thing which we offer to the gods and which is coveted by men of high station and the prize awarded for the noblest deeds. And such a thing is honour. For honour is clearly the greatest of external goods. Or Xenophon, they in whom is implanted a passion for honour and praise. These are they who differ most from the beasts of the field. These are accounted men and not mere human beings. (coughs) It's a very different vibe, isn't it? Honour, being praised, reckon someone. That was the greatest good to be sought after, to be competed for in all their dealings. And a desire for honour is what raised you above the common herd. This was the cultural air those with influence amongst the Corinthian congregation breathed, informing their desire for spiritual things, informing their use of gifts. In this world, you might love your friends who would be your peers whose friendship contributes to your honour and status. Oh, you'd be benevolent to your clients, those dependent on you, who would then owe you praise and honour. But love those who are not of your social class, associating with whom might cost you honour, not contribute to it. Love those who are competing with you for honour, for praise, where the other's success was understood as coming at the expense of your honour and status in the group. That kind of loving was unheard of. For the first hearers, 1 Corinthians 13 was not a kind of motherhood statement where everybody said, oh, that's nice, and moved on. It was actually a confronting challenge to their values. As Paul stresses, verses 1 to 3, as you heard, the necessity of love, and then verses 4 to 7 gives great clarity to the character of this necessary love whose character he will show us in direct opposite to some of the ways the Corinthians are behaving. And then in verse 8 to 13, he emphasises the surpassing value and enduring place of this love. 
in comparison with some of the gifts they were pursuing and abusing. A confronting challenge to them. And if we listen thoughtfully, we will also see these verses are a challenge to us who live in a society which gives lip service to the necessity of love, is actually deeply confused about the character of love and where in reality love may be a useful slogan but expressive individualism, pursuing and having the freedom to be who you want to be, who you will to be, is increasingly the dominant cultural value, a freedom which is often in direct conflict with the love Paul tells us we must have, the love which he says will remain into eternity and which we should pursue above all. See, these verses remain an invitation to a different life, a better life, not just in its impact on others, but a life lived in harmony with eternal reality, with the revelation of the living God in Christ, and so a life that endures forever. Desire, writes Paul, the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. Paul shifts the focus from the discussion of gifts by inviting us to see this even better way. He signals by that phrase that what he's about to write about is much more comprehensive than possessing and using this gift or that. It's a way, a manner of living, of conducting yourself in your journey through life. And so it embraces all of life, all relationships, all activities. And whereas individual gifts are not possessed by all, as a way, this is for all the way for everyone, whatever their gifts or background. And he writes that this way, the way of love is better. And that's actually a pretty anemic translation for something which in the Greek conveys the sense that this way is extraordinary, is surpassingly excellent, the superlative way. And he engages us with this most excellent way by making what are really shocking statements about the necessity of love. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So hear what Paul says. Without love, no matter how exalted my tongues are or I think of them, I'm just noise. Without love, I might have great insight and knowledge. I might even have that faith that works wonders. But I am Nothing. Without love, I might be extraordinarily generous or even be a martyr, but I profit nothing. I gain nothing. Now, notice Paul doesn't say my tongues or prophecy will be useless without love. No, he's speaking about the person. I am just a loud noise. I am nothing. I count for nothing. See, Paul goes right to the heart of the matter. The Corinthians were into certain gifts because of what it said of them, because of the honour, 
praise, prominence, they were thought to bring them in the group. Having those gifts, whether tongues or knowledge, for example, said, I'm spiritual, I'm insightful, I am a person that matters, should be listened to, respected, looked up to. But Paul's brutally clear. No, without love, you're an empty noise, nothing, gaining nothing. Your claims are empty. And he emphasises the necessity of love by saying this not just about tongues but of abilities and gifts that we admire as well, even of gifts Paul thinks are useful, like faith, knowledge, generosity to the poor, prophecy. Gifts that if we have them, we tell ourselves they make us special, important, people others should notice and respect. But no, says Paul, love is essential. Without it, our perception of ourselves, our conviction that we think these gifts make us something necessary, someone's, is empty. I am nothing. Not someone's, but people who don't rate, don't count at all. Now that's hard, isn't it? Because we all want to be someone's. Well, it was like a slap in the face for the Corinthians, for whom, as I've said, being a someone, getting and receiving honour was the highest good. And it's actually hard for us too. And not just because we all do want to be someone's to be noticed. You see, we live in a society where function, efficiency, getting the job done rates pretty highly. And Paul is saying, if I get the job done in the most effective and efficient way, but have not love, I am nothing. Oh, we live in a society that says being true to yourself, being who you want to be, expressing yourself when and in the way you desire is what matters, what comes first. And Paul is actually saying, if I live true to myself, get to say what I want, be who I want, do what I want, but have not love, I gain Nothing. Now that is shocking. So shocking that even Christians tend not to believe it, tend to ward it down what Paul is saying. We treat Paul really as if he's just exaggerating for rhetorical effect, as if he's saying, oh, yeah, yeah, love's important, but not absolutely necessary. Like our society, we think that being really good at something makes up for other deficiencies, don't we? In our culture, the great artist tends to be forgiven the moral chaos of their private lives, the cruelty they may have shown to their partners who they've used and discarded. Oh, the genius should be listened to, even if they're dismissive of others. And we find ourselves in the church overlooking, say, bullying, tolerating someone's bad temper because they're successful in growing the church, as if love was not necessary. We can even think to ourselves things like this, my musical talent or my generosity or my creativity or my great insight into the Bible should mean others are glad to have me here, even if I am a little grumpy or self-absorbed or unreliable, all a lack of love. We hear Paul but find reasons to not really believe because gifted people get things done, make the service special, the program work. And 
Gifts are a whole lot more tangible, more measurable and noticeable than love, aren't they? We know we need them and who notices love? Everyone's meant to love. Doesn't make us special, but not everyone speaks in tongues or is a great communicator or a brilliant administrator. And using my gifts allow me to express myself, show who I am. So you think, ah, yeah, important. But, but, But actually Paul's saying, without love, nothing. Just noise. No benefit. Feel Paul's clarity. He's not exaggerating. He's saying that love is to the Christian life like water is to soil. Without it, even the best soil is a desert with nothing to offer. He's saying that love is to the Christian life like oxygen to the body. You could have a great physique, but without oxygen, you don't count amongst the living. Without love, he's saying you're a fruitless desert for all your self-expression like. And that shouldn't really surprise us, shouldn't it? We say God is love. How could anything make up for a lack of love in his eyes? And why should we count as anything in the family of God when we don't share the family characteristic? What all the members of the family have to have? Love. It's not an exaggeration. Love is essential. But what is this love that is necessary? Well, we need to hear God's word on this, don't we? Because there's a lot of confusion over love's character. For there is a range of quite different human behaviour that goes under the name of love. People can love footy or cycling, meaning they like it, might devote some time to doing it or watching it, but it doesn't take them really outside themselves. Parents love their children but not all in the same way or with the same effect. We can love our parents in the sense of having respectful affection for them. Oh, then there's being in love, that heady mixture of romance and desire. We can even call love that dark, consuming passion that wants to own and control. That's right, abusers speak of loving those they abuse. Now, none of these loves would automatically make us think of the kind of love Paul says is necessary. And we need to see that because if we practice a counterfeit, something that goes by the name of love but is not this necessary love, we'll be disappointed and even lose the will to pursue love. So Paul is going to help us love by dispelling any confusion about the love we must have by describing it for us in verses 4 to 7. Uh, So uh, what's the character of this love? Love, says Paul, is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, unlike most of our translations, including the CSB, Paul actually only uses verbs, doing words in his description of the character of love. 
Love is known in how it acts, how it relates to others in attitude and deed. And so to help us get a feel of it, another translation, this is uh, Thistleton's, who's got this kind of verbal doing thing going. Love waits patiently. Love shows kindness. Love does not burn with envy, does not brag, is not inflated with its own importance. It does not behave with ill-mannered impropriety, is not preoccupied with the interests of self, does not become exasperated into pique, does not keep a reckoning up of evil. Love does not take pleasure at wrongdoing, but joyfully celebrates truth. It never tires of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. Now, that's a long list, isn't it? And lists can be difficult in sermons because by their nature they have lots of information and that can be overwhelming. But it's worth slowing down to look at each item on the list to give it sense so that it can operate now and later as you read it for yourself as a test of the reality of our love, as a, as a kind of mirror, each one a kind of mirror which will show you yourself. So we're going to slow down over this list so that God's word can show us how we can love better, what we need to change to be genuinely loving. So it says love waits patiently. And that's kind of two senses. Firstly, it's not short-tempered but long-tempered. Love is patient under provocation, slow to speak, slow to anger and so preserves relationships. And secondly, it waits patiently in the sense of giving people time, time to grow and mature, time to overcome incapacity, time to repay what is owed. Often we expect too much too early, whether that's in our children or in people who've just become Christians or from people who have had really wounding experiences. You know, we want them to grow up, to get over it now and write people off when their development or healing doesn't conform to our timetable, which, if we're honest, is usually for our own sake. So we can get on with what we want and not have to bother any longer about their weakness or incapacity. But love waits patiently. You know, Sam Aubrey, whom whom some of you know, says that for growth in godliness in Christian communities, people need three things, gospel, safety and time. Patient love gives people time and so helps them to grow and keeps them in relationship while they do. So ask, are you patient? And is that only when you're feeling good? What about when you're tired or hungry or feeling frustrated? And patient not just with your brothers and sisters, but with that service person at the shop, that slow driver in front of you, I'm really challenged on that. There's a speed limit. That's the limit. Why would you go 10 k's underneath it? Okay, I'll just pass that on if I'm driving home. No, okay. That inefficient work colleague, right, loves patience and loves shows kindness, a real graciousness to others. Now, that starts with noticing them, okay, being aware of the other person and conscious of their needs and how they might be feeling. And then being genuinely thoughtful in responding to them. You know, sometimes we might find it difficult to describe kindness, don't we? Because I know that because I ask every Monday life, this is a spoiler for them, I ask them, 
Say, give me an example of kindness. And they don't do it quick enough, right? Uh, at least for me. <laughs> I think I just said love is patient. Oh, boy. Uh, but, but we know kindness when we see it, don't we? And especially when we're the recipients of it. An example of kindness that stuck with me is actually when I was much younger and a friend and I were going to the theatre to see a play and this theatre had a large forecourt in the middle of which there was a clock tower and we were waiting outside the theatre under its large awning when it started to rain. And I looked out and saw a person standing in the rain at the clock tower and it was obviously, you know, an agreed meeting to place and so she was waiting there in the rain and I thought, oh, how stupid, doesn't even have the sense to come in out of the rain. And my friend walked out and gave her her umbrella. (laughs) Now, that was kind, wasn't it? Genuinely kind. And it also illustrates, sadly, that some of us are not naturally kind, instead quick to criticise and judge. Kindness is so good. You know, a kind person, for example, won't eat in front of a hungry person without offering to share their food. A kind person won't arrange something and assume everyone has transport and can afford it. They'll actually think about the circumstances of others and what's needed to include them and offer help. Showing kindness is particularly needed when we're dealing with people out of their own social context, guests in our homes, visitors to our church, overseas students. You see, we might feel quite at ease in our familiar surroundings but they don't know how things work. Might be anxious or fearful about getting something wrong and offending or being thought a fool. Kindness is not so wrapped up in its own agenda or pleasure that it doesn't notice. And then it takes the initiative to help to make the others feel at ease with explanation or example and it never makes fun of them. Kindness, for example, notices if all the work's being done by just a few and will share the load and will find it hard, for example, to leave someone to finish up the cleaning all alone, whether that's at home or at church. Now, some of us are naturally kind, but like me, we may not be. And so we actually need to think through these things, think ahead, because love is kind. Paul now tells no, sorry, develops the character of love by telling us what love doesn't do, attitudes love doesn't harbour, ways of relating and responding that love says no to. So love doesn't envy. Unlike the Corinthians who were so competitive, Paul can say, you're envying, you're fighting. You see, for the Corinthians, honour was a zero-sum game. If someone else gained honour, it was a cost to you and so envy. Wanting what someone else had simply because they had it was a constant companion to their squabbling. But love can actually delight in the achievements of others. It doesn't resent their success or the status that comes with it. And it does that even when someone else is succeeding in something you really want to be good at. You see, if I'm writing music, I don't really mind if my friends get best and fairest at the footy. But when his song gets chosen over mine, that hurts. You know, sometimes the love that doesn't envy is a real challenge, isn't it? You really want to be in a relationship. And then your friend who has shared with you in mutual encouragement in singleness 
starts a serious relationship with a good bloke or girl. You want to be happy for them, don't you? But you feel the struggle. Or feeling ourselves unnoticed, we can just envy the attention that someone is getting from their giftedness and it can fester into resentment and we can become critical. Even in communities like ours. So how are you going with envy? And love doesn't brag, it's not boastful. Love doesn't put others down and make them feel small by boasting of its own achievement. Love doesn't dominate the conversation talking about themselves. And even Christians can do that, can't they? Let me tell you of my vision. Oh, let me tell you of what the Lord has done through me, of my last great mission trip or how he's blessed me. Oh, oh, let me tell you of the really good and great I met at the Gospel Coalition Council meeting. Right? Love doesn't boast and it's not puffed up arrogant, full of its own self-importance. Again, this is something Paul has already observed amongst the Corinthians. He said they're puffed up. Knowledge puffs up, and they were puffed up. But love's not preoccupied with the attention he or she receives, with the way others are thinking about or treating oneself. Love thinks less of itself by thinking about itself less and more of others, how they're being treated. See, love embraced, liberates us from the prison of anxious self-concern. And love doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't behave with ill-mannered impropriety. Love is courteous. It doesn't behave in ways that make others feel uncomfortable by its lack of decency or good manners. Now, we need to hear that being rude has been almost made into an art form in our society by the self-important and the self-righteous. You see, they're so sure of their own importance or their cause that they don't have to respect the normal boundaries. Their right to be who they are trumps all other considerations. So they can push in, interrupt or speak over, dress to draw attention to themselves, speak to shock so that others notice them, demand that others address them in the way they want. But not love. Love is aware of the accepted expectations of behaviour in differing contexts. And so, for example, it tries to be punctual. It makes RSVPs. It lets others finish their sentences. It passes food to others, things our culture has become careless of. And it doesn't impose itself on others. See, love for the Corinthians, particularly in relation to idle food or the use of gifts, doesn't insist on its own way. Love is not preoccupied with the interests of self. So love's not involved in church to get self-affirmation by the use of gifts or to impose its views on politics or parenting or vaccines on others. And it isn't touchy, easily angered, does not become exasperated into peak. What a good word if you didn't know it. See, it's, it's a great word. Peak is a feeling of anger, resentment or ill will resulting from some slight or injury. You see, some are so focused on the way they want things or sensitive about people's perception of them that you feel like you're walking on eggshells around them, don't you? And that one wrong step, one wrong word will provoke an angry response. Not so love. In its generous concern for others, there's actually no room for irritability. 
and love doesn't keep a record of offence. It was accepted, actually, in Roman society that as part of a determination to maintain your honour, you would keep a record of the hurts and insults that others gave you so that you could restore honour by paying people back, by taking, as in 1 Corinthians 6, people to court or talking them down to their friends, gossiping about them, frustrating their plans. You didn't forget the injuries others did you. But love, says Paul, doesn't keep score. It's not out to restore its reputation. It breaks the cycle of payback. In Peter's words, love covers a multitude of sins and it frees you then to live in the present without being a prisoner to past hurts. It's wonderful. And just as love doesn't look for revenge, love doesn't take pleasure at wrongdoing. Now, there are two, again, senses of wrongdoing. Wrongdoing being done by someone and wrong being being done to someone, someone who we may have a grudge against or who is our competitor. So love doesn't seek to wrong others, to get pleasure so by outsmarting or tricking someone, getting one over them. And love doesn't take pleasure in exposing the wrong someone does. Exposure is an opportunity for revenge. And love doesn't take pleasure at wrong or misfortune suffered by another, hurt being suffered by someone who has hurt you. That's actually easy to do, to take that pleasure, isn't it, when you're competing in debate or politics or for scarce positions and resources. It's easy, isn't it? to be pleased when something bad happens to your opponents. But we are to love even our enemies, to want their good and so never to take pleasure in harm done to them. Rather than taking pleasure at wrongdoing, love joyfully celebrates truth. It rejoices in or with the truth. You see, love is never afraid of truth. It welcomes truth. Love isn't anxious that, the truth will somehow threaten our privilege or position. There is no love in cover-ups. Love is honest and open, for the good of the other is love's goal. Now, there's so much more that could be said of the relationship of love to truth, but love needs truth to flourish, to know how to love the other person. And love can never leave someone in a lie, leave them to think that something God condemns them. God condemns, will be good for them. Now we need to remember that love rejoices in the truth as we come to truth-telling, say, in pursuit of reconciliation with Indigenous peoples or deal with the awful aftermath of sex abuse scandals. There's no love in cover-up. And we need to remember it again as expressive individualism demands that we endorse behaviours that bring people under God's judgment, often making that demand in the name of love, corrupting love, as it were, subordinating love to the demand to be free from all authority, external to the self. But real love welcomes, not hides from the truth, especially the truth of God. Now Paul concludes with the limitless nature of love. Never tires of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. Now these verses can be misunderstood to suggest, say, that 
the opposite of what I've just said, that love puts up with sin, or that love makes you a doormat, accepting everything. But actually, Paul's saying quite something quite different. He's saying real love is like Jesus on the cross. You see, there was no limit there to what our Lord Jesus would bear for us, even giving his own life. Oh, there was no limit there to his trust in the Father, entrusting his very life into the Father's hands. There was no limit to his confidence that God would fulfil his promises, no limit to his hope, confident that God would do the impossible, raise the dead. And there was no limit to his perseverance in doing good, in doing the Father's will to the end. That's the love Paul is describing. And love, like Christ's, is strong. It perseveres in following its own agenda to seek the good of others in obedience to God, confident that God is trustworthy and his promises are sure and it knows no limit in doing God's will. So love doesn't say yes to the demands and desires of others too readily. It listens, well, that's love. But obedience to God sets its agenda, creates its boundaries and trust in God gives its strength. Love like this is necessary. And I hope if you listen, as you've listened, you've seen not only is it contrary to our culture, it is wonderful. Freeing. But where did Paul get this picture of love from? You know, did he just sit there and make a few notes one evening over a glass of wine? Said, oh, this is what love likes. No, this love has deep roots. This is the love Paul reading his Old Testament had seen God display in his dealings with Israel. The Lord had revealed himself as gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and the Lord had shown that over centuries. He had been patient, hadn't he, sending prophet after prophet to call Israel back to himself, repeatedly forgiving and restoring them. And he had been kind taking the initiative to do them good time and again. And this love of God, this loving kindness of God, had found its climax and clearest expression in our Lord Jesus, revealed for all in the gospel. What do we see there? God demonstrating his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's love's revealed this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the love Paul is speaking of because this was the love Paul himself had experienced in believing the gospel. That's right, isn't it? Paul is someone who could say of himself that the son of God had loved him. The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, he writes in Galatians. Paul could say that his was an experience of rich grace and mercy, of generous kindness. Oh, and yes, that in his salvation, Christ had displayed perfect patience. 
See, there's nothing arbitrary in this picture of the character of love. It's Paul applying to the life of the Corinthians the love he and every believer has come to know and experience in believing in the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, crucified for our sin in the Father's love for the world. To know God in Christ, to have believed the gospel, is actually to be committed to this love. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children in your kindness and your love. The Corinthians, with their factions, jealousies and squabbles, with their pride, their selfish behaviour at the Lord's Supper, their divisive use of knowledge to give them licence to act without the regard for the welfare, the good of others, with their misuse of gifts, needed this love. And we need this love. If we're going to preserve our unity as the Lord's people, be a congregation where we can welcome and build up one another, if we're going to have relationships that endure beyond the merely superficial And so Paul gives us more encouragement. He helps us see the priority of love and why it's right to persevere in love by speaking now of its enduring value, especially in relation to the gifts the Corinthians were so keen for. Love, he writes, never ends. But as for prophecies, they'll come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. Paul compares love to those gifts, the Corinthians and Paul values, the things that they're putting time and effort into that they might be proud to possess knowledge, tongues, prophecy. But he says, love, unlike these things, never ends. Literally, it never falls. It never falls to pieces. It never collapses. It keeps on standing in place. But gifts, prophecy, knowledge, they'll be rendered obsolete and redundant. Tongues will cease. There'll come a, come a time when they will be silenced. And Paul supports his claim with two arguments, two comparisons. The firstly, he says, all our knowledge and insight in this age is partial and incomplete. We know in part. Oh, but when we have perfect knowledge, the whole picture at the end of the age, well, there'll be no place or need for the partial and incomplete. Paul is not saying that we don't know truly now, but that we don't know completely. And, of course, with that comes always the risk of misunderstanding. It's a bit like, you know, let's say you're into a book and it's not available yet in Australia and and a friend sends you photocopied pages, you know, the 10% you're allowed for study. Sends them in advance. And you read them, it gives you a sense of the plot, some of its characters. But when the whole novel comes out, you don't need those scattered individual pages anymore, do you? And you trade your partial understanding of the story for the complete partial to the complete. And the second comparison Paul uses is of the immature with the mature. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. Is this where I say before the invention of computer games or would that be unkind? Uh, sorry. Okay. Uh, compared to what will be, even the most grown-up of us are still kids in shorts. And our preoccupation with these gifts will be seen as a part of our immaturity. Whereas love shares in is part of our maturity. See, our present state of knowing, even the most knowledgeable of us, like Paul himself, is indirect. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll know fully as I'm fully known. See, all we can know in this age, says St Paul, is, is the reflected image, not the person himself. But at the end, then, that indirect knowledge will be replaced by direct knowledge, direct experience in relationship with God. Now there's a great deal of wonder and hope in that phrase, then I will know fully as I am fully known. Wonder because it is actually hard to imagine the transformation that will have to take place in us of holiness and capacity for that knowing to be realised. And also hard to understand the richness of relationship that will be a believer's then with God. You know, we could linger here for a long time, but there will have to be a massive transformation. But Paul's point is that to compromise love, to subordinate love, to possess and use prophecy or tongues is to seriously shortchange yourself because love is in a class apart. Love never ends. Now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. You see... Love endures because it already shares in the character of the life of the age to come, of the end, even now. Love belongs to our maturity. Love will be as valuable, desired and necessary when we see God face to face. You see, love is beating in time already with the heartbeat at the heart of the universe. It's a quality of longing and relationship that continues into heaven. Yes, it's something shared like faith and hope with every believer. It's the things, faith, hope and love, that we all have in common. That these are the things that are really matter, that are really valuable. But love stands apart. You know, we could discuss how faith, which is contrasted with sight, and hope, which is contrasted with possession, abide. But there is a sense in which trust in and expectation of God's goodness are always aspect of the relationship of a creature, even a transformed creature, with the living God. But Paul again mentions them here to emphasise the greatness of love. It is the greatest because love does not change its character or its focus. It stands continuously into the new age. Love never fails. So says St Paul when he starts 1 Corinthians 14, pursue love. But we've saw we see what's involved in that. 
we ought to ask, how can we be sure Paul is right? Because he is about to direct all your efforts to pursuing love. So you want to know why he's right. Because the priority of love is actually opposed. Sometimes it's opposed self-consciously, philosophically. Sometimes it's just opposed by our own sinful nature. But Nietzsche, for example, philosophically, a very influential late 19th century philosopher, regarded the kind of love Paul talked about as what he called slave morality. To be resisted and rejected is imprisoning the will to life. By contrast, he taught the noble person, the master, has a kind of moral code that's self-glorifying, that is proud not to be made for pity. This is what he said, one of the things he said. Belief in ourselves, pride in ourselves, a fundamental hostility and irony towards selflessness. These are sure, these are as surely a part of a noble morality as caution and a slight disdain towards empathetic feelings and warm hearts. Now you think, ah, oh, you can forget. No, Nietzsche has influenced our culture's conception of freedom and the good life. And as can be seen from Paul's description of love, love actually does stand against our culture's commitment to maximising individual freedom as the path to human flourishing because love obligates you to others from within. It obligates you to look for their good, to constrain your actions by what? benefits them. So there's actually a strain in our society that opposes love. Oh, and the other thing is loving others is just plain hard, isn't it? It can get in the way of you getting your own way, pursuing your own goals, giving priority to what you see as your own needs. So how can Paul be sure about the necessity, character and enduring place of the value of love? How can you be sure? Well, there is only one source and it is confidence in the enduring victory of Jesus. You won't know about the priority of love from nature read in tooth and claw. You won't know about it from evolutionary thought with its emphasis on the survival of the fittest and therefore being the fittest to survive. And you won't learn about it from ancient Greek philosophy. Just as Paul's understanding of the character of love comes from the gospel, so does his confidence that it endures into eternity. For our resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the triumph of love. So you think about his death and his rising. Hate did not win. The human will to power, to aggregate power to ourselves, did not win. The human desire to be autonomous, to be free itself from the constraints of honouring its creator by killing him, did not win. God won. That's right. The one who in love, for our sakes, humbled himself to death, was raised and is now exalted to the right hand of the Father. The God who is love rules. He's the Alpha and the Omega. 
He has the last say. And so love will never fall or fail in the universe ruled by the God who is love. And so says St. Paul to the Corinthians and to us, pursue love. Pursue love. Make the goal of your life to get love. Now Paul uses a word that can be used of a hunter running down his quarry. And so he's speaking of a purposeful, persevering determination to be loving. It's not something we can be passive in. But how can we do that? How do you pursue love? Because often we can hear a sermon like this, and as Jean alluded to, it can either lead to discouragement because we see how little we love or frustration at knowing how to grow in love with the consequence that we try to put it out of our mind. So how can we grow in love? What shall I do that a year from now the people I am living with think I am a kinder and more patient person? It's a good goal, isn't it? Well, the first thing you do is embrace pursuing love as a goal consciously. And that will mean that you'll reflect on your life. We're not good at self-reflection. We're good at staying busy. But you'll reflect. You'll ask of an action, was that kind? Especially when the other person's upset. Was it kind? Was the way I treated that other driver or the way I conducted myself in that conversation kind? And if you're pursuing love, you will listen to others as they point out where you might be failing in love and you won't dismiss them. Oh, and, and you'll live the Christian life, which is a life of repentance and faith. So where you know you fail, you won't react with indifference. You'll actually grieve for it and seek God's forgiveness. Oh, yes, and in repentance, be determined to address the causes of your failure in love. Was it because you're more irritable when you're hungry or tired? If the answer is yes, if you're pursuing love, you'll say, I will be disciplined with my sleep and my eating, for the love of others, as well as being self-aware. Do I interrupt and talk over people? Why, yes. You'll think, why? What, what am I needing? And on a practical level, when I feel the urge to interrupt, I'll count to ten first. I'll, I'll stop that and I'll find a polite way of indicating that I have something to say, maybe even raising my hand. No, that sounds awkward is much better than talking over someone. And you'll seek forgiveness and engage in change confidently. Yes, because you are convinced of the truth of the gospel, that you're forgiven by faith in Jesus, so you don't need to wallow in self-recrimination about your failure of love. You're forgiven. And you do have the Spirit working in you, and the first fruit of the Spirit is love. That's right, you'll be confident as you give yourself to love, to Keep in step with the spirit that God is at work to change you, to conform you to the character of his son, and so you will keep going. Oh, and yes, most importantly, you will make sure you grow in knowledge of Jesus' love for you. For the life of love is the life of imitating God that flows from grateful trust. 
And while no one will give you a prize for being loving, and people might even think you're a loser because you are not self-promoting or just following your own desires, you will not only be able to use your gifts for the good of others, for the purpose God has given them to you, actually you will be able to look forward to that day when we will know the God of love, the God who is love, as we are known now by him in his love for us. And isn't that worth striving? So that's the application. Pursue love. Make it part of your life. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can talk about love because those of us who trust the Lord Jesus have come to know your love for us in Christ. We thank you that we can be sure that pursuing love is the way of life because you have raised your son who gave himself for us in love from the dead and you have shown that love and truth triumphs in your world. And we thank you that when we are conscious of failure we can be assured of your forgiveness and can give ourselves zealously to pursue love because we know your spirit is at work in us and you will work all things to conform us to the image of your son. We pray, make us loving so that we know the freedom from resentment and bitterness, so that we know the freedom from wanting to right past wrongs, so that we know the freedom of being able to delight in your love and to do good in loving others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.